You are listening to The Dish on Health IT, brought to you by Point of Care Partners, a leading health IT consultancy. Each episode will feature a rotating panel of senior consultants and guests who will talk about trends and innovations in health IT, while also highlighting how organizations can leverage these advances to solve their business problems. Today's episode focuses on interoperability and health analytics. Senior health information technology consultants Gary Austin and Ken Kleinberg welcome guest Dale Sanders, Chief Technology Officer of Health Catalyst and one of the most influential leaders in healthcare analytics today. Our discussion today focuses on how more liquid data movement and normalization of data can enhance the industry with more powerful analytics for decision support and population health, which is especially crucial as we face a pandemic. We hope you enjoy today's episode and that you'll share your topic ideas with us by emailing us at podcast at bocp.com. Good day, everybody, and welcome to the uh, ongoing adventures of The Dish on Health IT. I'm your host, Gary Austin, affectionately known as Lumpy, uh, coming to you from the beautiful Finger Lakes region of upstate New York. Uh, We at Point of Care Partners are health IT consultants with 100 plus associates in over 35 states. We work across all stakeholder groups, payers, healthcare delivery entities, pharma, health IT vendors, and government agencies. And we're viewed as an independent, trusted party, the Switzerland of consultancy. With me on the dish on health IT is my co-host, Ken Kleinberg, from the capital region of New York. And joining us today from the mountains of Utah, we are honored to have Dale Sanders, the CTO of Health Catalyst. Ken and I have both followed Dale's media for years, and and for my cat seat, uh, honestly, he's one of the great visionaries in the healthcare analytics field. So props to him for all the work he's done to advance the field over the years. There's a lot we could talk about. thousand topics with Dale, uh, and he's a a man of uh, sort of great vision around this. But in this episode, we're going to focus around analytics technology uh, futures. So everybody grab yourself an adult beverage, soak up the fireplace, and enjoy this episode. So Dale, hard to believe that uh, anybody wouldn't know you, but why don't we give your listeners a minute or two on your background, minute on Health Catalyst, and and overview sort of your current focus in terms of what you're looking at and working on. Well, my mom would appreciate that, uh, Gary, but... Yeah, I think you might be overstating my infamy a bit. My background, you can break my background into sort of two big halves. The first half of my career was in uh, the Air Force. I was a command control communications and intelligence officer specializing in nuclear warfare and nuclear decision making. And we call it PPE at that time, actually. It was planning, policy, and execution of nuclear warfare. And then I went to work for NSA. I was on contract at a company called TRW at NSA for a number of years. And then I did a two-year stint with Intel, actually. And then I I was working on a computer-aided decision support tool for the Pentagon in the nuclear space, thinking that I would learn from healthcare and apply it to the stodgy old Pentagon about computer-aided decision support. And I was just kind of stunned at how poorly computerized and data-driven healthcare was. And this was in the mid-90s. We started a healthcare line of business at TRW and ended up selling it. Uh, versions of that ended up at SAIC. And then I finally decided if I want to know healthcare, I've got to get into it. So I talked to Intermountain into hiring me. And so I was at Intermountain for a while. Then I was at Northwestern. And then I was in the Cayman Islands and then Health Catalyst. So good overview. So uh, Ken and I put together a bunch of topics that uh, for you to opine over. Uh, I'll toss some of them out. You know, give us your spin on them. Ken can throw in some color commentary uh, where uh, where appropriate or where he has some uh, good subject matter around that. I thought maybe we'd start with patient identification. Okay, so it, it's 2020. I still don't have a single identifier for my uh, healthcare records. 
why the heck not? And, and what's finally going to change this situation? Yeah, so we have this national boogeyman aversion to a national patient identifier. I wish we can get rid of that. But in recognition that there are some folks that have that concern, I believe the answer is a combination of a, um, a, a voluntary system for those in the commercial healthcare space combined with a mandatory system for those that are benefiting from VA, Medicaid, Medicare. And then we commercialize the management of those patient identifiers, just like we've done with internet domains. So we take the management of the patient identifier out of the hands of the government, put it out into the free market, and we um, follow the success you know, that we've had with internet domains. So I see a little more progress in interest in that uh, at the national level, but we'll see how Congress attracts to that or not. We'll see. Got it. Got it. Ken, you've done some work with TEFCA around this, correct? Yeah, I mean, TEFCA is uh, looking, at, of course, at a nationwide exchange uh, with a lot of these interoperability initiatives uh, just deciding on what's the so-called core data set that you're going to work with uh, is key, and or at least a starting point, a foundation. And we could do the same with patient ID. We could agree on, the, let's say, 10 or a dozen fields that we're going to try to do a better job of capturing. And uh, that alone would probably make a, a pretty big difference. And then there's also the point about whether patients can go in and correct errors when they see them. Because as we know, one once a, a database is not accurate or it's corrupt, that just seems to spread and just keep coming back and back and back. Yep, absolutely. So, so data, data everywhere and, and not a drop normalized, okay? Uh, even something relatively simple like lab results or what you'd think would be simple, right? I mean, I get something really new like genomics maybe not being normalized or being more difficult or not having a lot of standards, but even some of this, you know, old style data, uh, we've had lab data for, what, 100 years or 100 plus years probably, right? Why, why can't we have some of this stuff normalized across the board? Why is this such a difficult process, Dale? Well, I, I think it boils down to economic incentives, again, for a lot of the trouble in healthcare, right, Gary? So what we've seen, you know, we're, we now have somewhere in the neighborhood of 80 million patient records nationally in a repository that we call Touchstone. And we're using it to help battle the COVID situation. We're, look, we're using that repository for all sorts of things. And I want to thank our clients for being willing to participate in that. So we analyzed the LOINC codes associated with COVID results. There were 3 billion results, and only 6% of those were normalized to a LOINC code. And so I stepped back and I was Crazy. like, I, I know, right? So yeah. I, I stepped back and I thought, what is going on? Why just 6%? And I, the conclusion I have, the hypothesis that I have is that We've normalized enough to get reimbursements, and that's it. And so if you really think about it, does it matter to a single healthcare system to be normalized to a national or international standard? Probably not that valuable, right? If they're normalizing to their own vocabulary and it works for them, that's probably all they're desired to do. But if, you, if you're interested in, in analyzing data beyond the boundaries of your healthcare system, as we need nationally, for public and population health, we've got to incentivize or mandate broader normalization of vocabulary and, and go way beyond white codes, obviously. So do you see coming post-COVID as, uh, you know, CDC or somebody like that going to mandate some of this for public health purposes? I'm in the circles that I operate, you know, I sit in, a, in several different national meetings and committees and things like that. And Every chance I get in those meetings, I'm advocating that we take a stronger stance. And if we have to, we mandate this, expand, you know, maybe part of the information blocking rule, 
something, uh, I think it's time that we have to mandate normalization. Got it. Ken, is there any, any you know, ideas around this at a, a national level? Just going to mention that uh, I was attending some of the sessions for the ONC Tech Forum last week, and labs were uh, discussed often. And to Dale's point, the mapping is strikingly ineffective. Uh, there are physicians ordering tests by the names that they know, uh, but they don't really know what tests they're actually asking for because uh, what's behind the scenes isn't really visible to them. And of course, the labs call stuff, uh, you know, whatever they want to call it. There's no uh, convention for how those are named. There, there might be one central set of line codes, but if you're not really mapped to those and you don't know what those uh, mappings are or they're inaccurate, then you're, you're looking at a, a pretty disturbing situation. Right. So let me let me drill a little deeper on that. So why why is there not a standardized vocabulary for things like even mundane things like orders, results, and and such? I mean, I could talk into my iPhone and it, it translates it into Swahili automatically, right? Uh, why can't the power of the computer? You know, you guys are computer guys. Why why can't the power of the computer be used to translate all this clinical gobbledygook into the Queen's English in a consistent, normalized fashion? Are are we stuck? here until quantum computing shows up or something? Is the power just not there or what? Well, I, I mean, the world would be simpler if there was only one kind of automobile, right? We could all get it repaired everywhere we went, but uh, there's something called competition. And frankly, having different groups that are advancing different standards is a way to advance society. But you're right, Gary, it runs us into some difficult challenges. What about you, Dale? What do you think? Uh, well, so I've, I've seen... Um, I'll say that I've been invited to and I've participated in these passive voice transcription, voice dictation systems, right? That sit in an exam room, listen to the conversation between the patient and the physician, and then attempt to code that conversation. So just NOMAD and ICD, et cetera. So there's, there's big money actually being applied from all the big vendors that you might expect into that space. So I suspect there will be something come along like that in the not too distant future. But I would also say that we should all temper our expectations because I've been in natural language processing since the, probably 1990 when we had unlimited budgets at NSA. We, and it's, the human language is a very difficult thing, to, uh, especially the English language, to make sense of. Then you layer on the complexities of a clinical vocabulary, and it gets even more complex to turn that into computable, discrete elements. So I, it's going to be an asymptote, right? I think we can push the accuracy and the progress towards passive dictation and codified elements up that asymptote, but there will always be a need for a human to, um, to edit and, and intervene with it. But there's a way to certainly advance this journey leveraging the, the power of, of national language processing and leveraging the power, you know, the increased power of computer, uh, you know, processing power and things like that here now. Yeah. But back to your, back to the earlier point though, Gary, the simple things that we could be doing right now are the things we know we can do, which are labs, you know, ICDs. We can use SNOMED more often. So NLP, coded NLP is, a lot, is quite a ways out. There's still things that we could do that would be enormously valuable. NDC codes, for example, as well, right? Medications. So that's what we've all got to take a little more pride in finishing off. Healthcare systems could take this on right now if they wanted. Right. It seems like it's very possible. And, and frankly, it's probably doable without, without government mandate, right? 
you know, it is absolutely doable. Yeah. You've also got the issue of you've got codes for uh, clinical documentation, like the SNOMED you mentioned. You've got LINC codes. You've got RX norm for medications. You've got ICD-10 for uh, procedure codes and so forth. So it's not like there's just one terminology set. There are many of them, and we'll have new ones as we advance into genetics and uh, precision medicine, uh, social determinants of health. There uh, will likely be some advancing standards there too. And they all have to work together and that's where the maps come in. But uh, you need really smart people who are very clinically knowledgeable to put the maps together and they have to be migrated. Let's switch over to uh, combinatorial data a bit. So, you know, I, I look at this inherent incompatibility between administrative data from the payers and, and clinical data from clinicians, healthcare providers, uh, delivery entities, things like that. So, you know, you guys have done, I, I would assume, a huge amount of work with this over at Health Catalyst, right? How, how do you look at pulling this data together and sort of rationalizing it across those two, you know, massive domains that really are driving healthcare in this country? I'll digress into data modeling for just a second. So in the old days, there were kind of, there were two extremes of data modeling. There was the enterprise data model, I would say kind of typified by the HL7 RIM, reference information model. Then I came along into the industry and I brought with me this concept that I call late binding. Now, a lot of data modelers call it uh, schema on read. Either of those extremes doesn't work. So late binding feels good for a while. And that means you're going to, you're going to, coalesce data into, into standardized, normalized uh, agglutinations as the use case calls for it. But you're going to wait until the use case drives that binding. With the enterprise data model, the HL7 approach kind of has always been, here's the model. Now we're going to force everyone's schema into that representation. Well, that doesn't work either, right? We've been down that path. There's all sorts of reasons that doesn't work. So what we do at Health Catalyst is, is kind of a, a middle ground between those two. There are times when late binding makes a lot of sense because it's, it's quick, it's agile, it's adaptable. But there are these clinical and analytic domains where you can normalize around vocabulary and you can normalize around concepts like sepsis and CHF and readmission and things like that. So if you peel to open the Health Catalyst data model, what you would see are these domain and vocabulary-oriented data models that sit in between late binding and enterprise data modeling in the past. We still embrace late binding when it makes sense, but you, you see this, this middle ground of curated data that's kind of a manageable thing to keep up with and to execute. Who's going to win pulling all this payer and clinical data together? Can you want to take a stab at that? Like, is it the analytics companies or the EMR companies or big tech or, or who, you know? Yeah, those are all possible. I could add a few more to that list. Uh, I mean, there's this concept of, you know, the converged platform between payers and providers. And registries are an example of how you're pulling information together that a lot of people can use. Uh, the EHR vendors have taken a run at this. The analytics companies have taken a run at this. Now we've got the so-called population health management vendors, some of which have been more on the, the business side of value-based care. Uh, but there are some that are also on the tech side of, of that. 
uh, it's frankly a huge opportunity. You know, the payers don't have the same reliance on vendors that the provider side has. Uh, we have a very defined market of electronic health record vendors for providers, but you know, h- how do you identify who the vendors are, if you will, for payers? So they're uh, they're a little bit more of, uh, in one way, a, a fortress to to penetrate, and also a little bit of a greenfield there. I think, frankly, Health Catalyst has a huge opportunity to sit in the middle and and bring these two worlds together. Yeah. Yeah. I've been impressed with that. Do you do a lot of payer work, Dale? Uh, Obviously, you do a lot of clinical delivery work, right? Uh, We do a little bit of payer work, Gary, not a lot. You know, the payer work that we get involved in for the most part is associated with the IDNs that also have a payer. We don't have any significant. The Kaisers or the, you know, UPMCs or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we do pull in claims data in ACOs and things like that. But our, our core business in the, is in the provider space. Does that become sort of a, a uh, you guys have been doing a lot of acquisitions. You just had one this week or last week, right? Um, the, uh, the RCM space, I think it was, right? So, you know, is, is that, you know, I don't want to put you in trouble with the SEC, but is that sort of a mindset you guys have that, you know, hey, we've got to get better, faster, smarter on, on payer side data here too? Uh, yeah, sure. You know, I think it's inevitable that um, the the market, I think, is eventually going to go towards two-sided risk for everybody. So payers need to become providers. Providers need to become payers. But the truth is the payers are moving into the provider space at warp speed. The providers are moving into the payer space at what's the opposite of warp speed? I don't even know. <laughs> yeah. Strolling speed? So, snail's, I, snail's pace. Snail speed. <laughs> Yeah, so I think I think uh, I think providers better wake up pretty soon because they're going to be pushed to the side if they don't move into this space pretty quickly. And of course, what that means is providers have to be, you know, capable of working in the claim space and the risk management and risk prediction space better than they can right now. And the payers have to do the same working the other direction in the clinical space. Yeah, it's very interesting watching it come together. Yeah, I think there's an interesting market dynamic going on here, too, in that this year uh, the majority of payers are going to have just unseemly surpluses, right? Because nobody's doing right. nobody's doing any sort of diagnostic, nobody's getting any uh, electives, nobody's doing you know anything, right? And, and stuff. And, and so you know they're gonna have to do something with that money. I mean, some plans, like Blue Cross of Mass, they're giving hundred million dollars back to their accounts, right? And, right? and some plans are putting it to bolster their reserves. Other plans are going to be looking to spend it. And you know, I, I think we're going to see some things coming up here where some of these plans are going to go. You know, the Optum model are starting to buy practices right. up and, and that sort yeah. of thing. Uh, it'll be a buyer's market because a lot of systems are going to be in bad shape financially, right? Because of COVID. Totally agree, Gary. Totally agree. Yeah. And I think, you know, it begs vendors like us to understand that market shift and, and what are we going to do to address that new market, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. So good. Let's talk a little bit about data transport. So we, we've talked about sort of data structures and things like that. So uh, the recent CMS ONC uh, regulations around a uh, fire APIs and whatnot, right? Sort 
sort of game changing from our perspective. Mm -hmm. It moves everybody into a commonality of uh, data set, the USCDI. It moves everybody into a common technology stack. It puts you on par with, you know, uh, transportation and retail and all these other industries that are, you know, been in this space for 10 years, 20 years in some cases, right? So it's just going to make a real difference for healthcare going forward, you believe? Oh, yeah, totally. And, and, Kudos to the CMS and ONC team that made more progress on this than we've seen, you know, in years, in the 10, 12 years. So Rucker and company, SEMA Burma, they've really done a good job pushing this agenda, and uh, it's going to be transformative. There's no doubt about it. You know, I don't have the love affair with fire that everyone does. You know, I came from the world of services-oriented architectures and things like that before healthcare, and I've, I've learned all of the lumps and difficulties of APIs and SOAs before, you know, they became popular in healthcare. There's some shortcomings in the fire world, but I think we'll overcome it. And, um, you know, uh, let me just comment too. One, one of the shortcomings is, is that the, the EMR vendors were never designed with APIs in mind. Right. Right. Absolutely. And so you're retrofitting a very modern software engineering concept to a less than modern software environment. And we just all have to understand that, right? Where, where APIs really work well is in modern software where you've got multi-tenant architectures. Uh, you know, it's the reason that Facebook can, you know, push out an update to a billion people overnight and you never even know it. And so the challenge that we see is using Fire as a concept at all these individual implementations at client sites where the software is just not tuned for that kind of interaction. So I think in order for Fire to really be successful, I think we're going to have to see more transformative changes in the EMR vendors. Um, and I hope that Turner Epic Allscripts, I know, is working with Northwell to do that. So I'd like to see some aggressive re-architecting uh, with the major software vendors to see if we can't move that along faster. Yeah, one of, one of our thinking is, is that this is the uh, second wave of the EMR consolidation. So you had that first wave sort of, uh, you know, you had, what, 500 vendors that dropped to 200, right? Because, yeah. you know, Josie, Josie EMR had three guys in the local market, right? And this yeah. is going to be another one where, you know, if you're in that tier, and I don't think it's necessarily a size tier, it's almost sort of a, uh, a development tier. Like if you're in that right. tier that can't get you to uh, fire API uh, quickly, you know, you're, you're going to be left on the side of the road there. It's going to be pretty yeah. tough to compete in any way. Let's switch over a little bit to uh, consumer applications. So um, uh, Ken, give us a little profile on consumer apps. Where are these, where are these things going? Because this is going to be really critical next year from the uh, CMS ONC rules both with uh, payers having to provide data to um, to consumer apps and probably not too far down the line providers and, and, and whatnot, uh, but also these consumer apps just sort of springing up all over the place and, and what's the reality of them? Yeah, well, I think there are a couple of categories to consider here that uh, intersect. We have those apps that are going to come under more uh, FDA certification or approvals, uh, testing and so forth that, that are more medically oriented and then others that will, will be more generally uh, available, didn't have to go through all those approvals. Then we've got another category of, of, of apps that are associated very specifically with, let's say, EHR vendors or or health systems or, or, or payers, and then others that are more independent. And uh, I think the interesting competitive angle here is that those 
independent app that can potentially tap into provider systems and to payer systems can put a picture together that any one provider organization or any one payer organization can't equal. So uh, it becomes more of a cross-industry cross view. I mean, we talk about a longitudinal view, and it's usually longitudinal to the provider or longitudinal to the payer. What it really needs to be is longitudinal to the patient. But whether those independent apps that are going down this road will succeed or not because they've got to battle with the, the, the large players, the gorillas in their space, that's going to be the very interesting dimension. And to Dale's point, what CMS and ONC have delivered here is in fact that competitive environment now far beyond the competition that we saw in the past. So it's going to be pretty fascinating to see it. Yeah. So Dale, you've, I mean, you guys are, uh, you know, one of the premier, if not the premier analytics company out there. Do, do you see yourself getting into this consumer app space? Do you see yourself as an OEM under the covers or do you see yourselves as a, a data feeder to them? Well, the yeah, good question, Jerry. Let's see. What can I say here within SEC rules? The, Absolutely. Um, yeah. The, <laughs> I don't want to put you at any risk here. Uh, no, I'm joking. I've been pretty open about this. The, so the data operating system, which is this core platform that we built, really su supports three missions of data. And the three missions are analytics, workflow application development, and interoperability. So as a, as a tight-fisted CIO, I was tired of spending money on, you know, my workflow systems over here my data warehouse over here, my HIE over here. I said, it doesn't make sense because the data should all be the same. We just repurpose it for the different missions. So that's the way we've designed DOS is around those three missions. So in that context, we've built and third parties can build and clients can build applications on top of that data operating system. And if you wanna build a, a patient facing app on top of it, leverage the legacy data inside the healthcare system, plus augment that data with patient reported or patient interacted data, then you can do that. And so we have uh, a care management platform, for example, that's, we call it a data first application development environment. So it looks analytic, but it's really about the workflow of care management. And we'll eventually put some sort of patient facing app on that as soon as the market kind of calms down. That touchstone repository that I mentioned earlier is the national repository that I would eventually like to expose to the public so that you and I and Ken can query that national repository for other patients like me, see what, you know, patients like me, where are they being treated, how are they being treated, right? And then eventually allow them to socially interact with other patients like them. I mean, that's the, if you really look at what's happened in the consumer space, what's the super sticky apps in the consumer space besides games? It's social interactions for the most part, right? And so we have to create social interactions between patients like all of us. That's what will keep people coming back, I believe. And, and so far that's not happening. It's interesting. My uh, my younger sister died a few years ago of cancer, rare cancer. And um, I swear to God, it was a social interaction in their last year that kept her alive because she's talking to yeah. other patients and finding out what are they doing and they're trying this new med or this new therapy or, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and it did wonders for her. So I, I appreciate completely what you're saying there. It's not just kind of the, the letter of medicine, right? It's also all the social aspects around it also. Yeah, totally, Jerry. So, so, 
you know, it's it's not an interview in these end times here without talking about COVID's <laughs> impact. <laughs> okay. And so, yeah. So we were chatting beforehand. Yeah. You threw out a lot of military terms, you know, situational awareness and intelligence preparation and such, you know, you were a, a you know, a NSA guy. Right. And, uh, and I, you know, I've done some work in that space earlier in my career. So I, you know, I started reading up on Iraq one and trying to understand everything that you were talking about the other last night. And, uh, Amazing synergies to what we're seeing in healthcare. So, give our listeners a little primer about how you think about healthcare from a uh, let's call it a battlefield or a military perspective. Yeah, and everybody thinks it's crazy, and some people actually think it's kind of creepy, right? That I draw parallels between the two worlds, but they are right. There's nothing really new in the world. It's just it's taking concepts from over here and patterns and applying them over there, right? So, I saw that when I in the nuclear decision space, we spent a lot of time on subjective and objective data fusion, right? Human intelligence, sensor intelligence, and then trying to understand how reliable that data was, false positives and false negatives, and then what to do in reaction to that data. That's exactly where we are with decision-making in healthcare. It's the same exact concepts. And so the military over the years has really formalized the decision-making and the data required to support decision-making, recognizing there's always subjective and objective assessments. There's a concept known as intelligence preparation of the battlefield, recently changed it to intelligence preparation of the environment. And we can take that framework developed by the Pentagon, we could absolutely overlay that conceptually onto healthcare, and we could build the digital battlefield of healthcare that would support population health, public health, acute care, ambulatory care. The framework applies directly. Yeah, I wish that we would open our minds to that and, and formally look at those models in the military and, and bring those into uh, to healthcare. I'll let me one last comment before I forget. One of the challenges that we've had in COVID was situational awareness. So in the in the military, generally there's kind of three buckets of decision making and you tailor the data according to these three buckets. There's situational awareness, like what's going on in the situation. Then there's hypothesis generation. This is what we think is going on. This is what we think the intent of the disease or the enemy is. And then finally, what are we going to do to analyze our reaction to that and the impact that it has on the situation? It's closing that loop back from reaction back to the situation and how that uh, that cycle um, continues, right? So situational awareness, hypothesis generation, and outcomes analysis. Those are the three big buckets of data that are largely missing in the COVID battle space. And it highlights, it's COVID, but it highlights shortcomings that we have across every disease and patient type. It's interesting. When we were chatting in a little bit of prep uh, yesterday and going through this, I had this visual in my head of these little tiny military drones that were just shooting virus particles out of the air. So uh, your clarification was really necessary. <laughs> uh, uh, although I thought that was a cool visual, right? Good. All right. Well, it's, uh, this is great. What a, what a great guy. You know, we were uh, talking and set up here uh, for our listeners, and uh, I said we really need to do about a five-hour conversation because the three of us could just go on forever. Um, but let's, yeah, Dale, let's have you take us out for this week's edition. Okay. So, you know, you've not had any opinions up to this point in time through the interview. So how about giving us one to mull over? What, what's the biggest change in healthcare you think we're going to see next year? And it might be COVID driven or might not be COVID driven. You know, what, what, what do you, what do you prognosticate that's going to come down the pipe and, and sort of radically change the ecosystem? 
Oh my gosh. So is this a, you want me to give you a real prediction or do you want me to give you a hopeful prediction? Uh, we'll bring you back in a year and then, you know, we'll, we'll beat on you if you were wrong. How's that? I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, oh, I I think what we'll see is the relaxation of uh, some of the rules of uh, FDA clinical trials, relaxation around getting, um, you know, sort of translational medicine going. I think that's going to stay permanent, and I think that's going to have a giant impact on healthcare. So I think that's going to stick around uh, for the betterment of patient care, reduction of bureaucracy, and things like that. Yeah, it's an um, interesting one because there's going to be this uh, this push to accelerate COVID vaccine, right? And that's going to drive yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the uh, now this is more of a hopeful one, but you know we kind of put a pause on quality measures reporting, sort of, during COVID, right? Right. I have been a personal champion for years for reducing the burden of quality measures on clinicians and health systems. Because it's for the most part, it's it's been steering us down the path of overtreatment, overdiagnosis, and overtreatment. Right, we're still measuring process, not outcomes, and in the, and in the process of doing that, we're burning clinicians out, and it's not changing the curve of quality or cost. So we really need to go into quality measures version two from where we are right now, and we've put a pause on quality measures as a consequence of COVID. And I think we ought to just step back and say, while we're kind of stepping back from the reporting requirements, let's really put a lot of emphasis on um, what we need to do to make quality measures more effective, less burdensome for clinicians. Got it. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I had a discussion with a person about quality today, actually, and they were saying, like, like they threw up their hands exasperated and said, you know, can't we, like, automate this stuff? And why, why is this so hard? And, and it's very frustrating for everybody on both sides out there, quite honestly, clinicians and, and payers, sure. you know, they get masses of data and they got to figure out what to do with it and, you know, uh, qualify it and everything else. So the health uh, IT should be reducing the burden, not increasing it. Yeah. Totally. Not, a, not everybody got the memo, unfortunately. So, <laughs> All right, gentlemen, excellent conversation. Uh, we, we much appreciate that. And uh, Dale, we'll call you up in a year and we're going to we're going to see if you're right on the FDA uh, <laughs> and things. So, yeah. all right. Well, that's our time for this edition of the Dish on Health IT. Uh, many thanks to my co-host, Ken Kleinberg, and a tip of the 3.2 beer to our special guest, Dale Sanders <laughs> from Health Catalyst. That was coffee, by the way. That was coffee. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to think it was. Uh, we'll be back in a bit with the next edition. Uh, please subscribe to us or whatever podcast carrier you use, Apple, Google, or whatnot. Uh, if you have any speaker thoughts or you have any comments or suggestions on this podcast, please email us at podcast at pocp.com. Goodbye for now. And remember, health IT is a dish best served hot. Good day, everyone. Thank you for listening. If your organization needs help understanding the industry changes around medication management or how price transparency regulations may impact you, contact us at info at POCP.com.